Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 70, Organs on Ships in Space. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on in America's space agency. So the International Space Station is a lab, a big one in space. And, it's, and one of the greatest opportunities presented by this lab is the ability to test things in microgravity. We have a lot of tests focused at looking at the human body because a lot happens in this unique environment. Muscles deteriorate, bones resemble signs of osteoporosis, and humans seem to age faster. We figured out ways to counteract these effects, even reverse some, but there's still so much to learn because there are so many parts of the human body. But what if you can isolate organs, cells, and tissues, and really get a look at what's going on? Well, there's a way to do that with science, and it's weird. So today we're talking with Lucy Lowe. She's the scientific program manager for the Trans-NIH Tissue Chip for Drug Screening Program for the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, NCOTS, at the National Institute of Health, NIH. They've partnered with CASIS, the organization that manages the national lab on the space station, to send up what are called tissue chips, basically devices the size of a thumb drive, and they have living human tissues and cells in them. There are these little clear ships that are designed to be accurate models of the structure and functions of human organs, like the lung, the liver, and the heart. Yeah, I know, straight up sci-fi, but it's real, and it's happening aboard the International Space Station. So with no further delay, let's have Dr. Lucy Lowe tell us about these little chips, what they're doing in space, and what they aim to discover. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit correct. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Lucy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to describe this weird tissue chip thing. I don't even know where to begin with this stuff. It is straight up sci-fi. <laughs> straight up sci-fi. So organs organs on ships. I don't understand how this works. Why don't we just kind of start with just what is it? We're talking okay. about tissue chips. Mm -hmm. Let's just start with that. What is a tissue chip? Okay, so a tissue chip or an organ on a chip, mm -hmm. its official fancy name is a microphysiological system or MPS. And it is essentially a, a small uh, bioreactor, if you like. It's a, it's a bioengineered micro device that contains human cells. It could be animal cells, but we focus on human cells mm -hmm. in a three-dimensional cultural system. Uh, in some kind of scaffold. So it's essentially kind of recreating, recapitulating human tissues in this bioengineered bioreactor. And so a tissue chip, we say that, that we have three main properties that actually constitutes a tissue chip. We say that uh, it has to be three-dimensional, otherwise it's just a flat layer of cells on a plate, and humans are three-dimensional, they're not two-dimensional. Mm -hmm. So we need something that's three-dimensional. We also want um, multiple different kinds of cell types. So your liver, for example, is not just made up of hepatocytes or liver cells. It's made up of all kinds of endothelial cells, connective tissues, immune tissues, all that kind of good stuff. So we want multiple different kinds of tissue types within our tissue chip. And then we also supply fluids to it by microfluidic channels, for example. And the idea here is that every single tissue in your body has microvasculature and vasculature associated with it. It has to bring blood, has to bring fluids, has to bring nutrients, and it has to take away all the detritus that your cells create, all the rubbish that comes mm. out of your cells has to get flown away. 
So that is how microfluidics comes into it because you're then uh, not only providing a means of support for the tissues with all of the stuff that you're sending to them, but you're also uh, subjecting them to a lot of the kinds of stretch and shear forces that all of your tissues are subject to in vivo every single day. So if you think about your lungs, they don't just sit there, they stretch, they expand and then they contract. Mm -hmm. Every single cell in your lung is therefore expanding and contracting every single day, multiple different times. So the idea is that tissue chips can model these kinds of stretches, these kinds of shear forces, this kind of pulsatile flow as you get blood pumping through the system, exposure to all these different kinds of cell types, exposure to some kind of immune response. And it's all in this tiny little system that could be the size of a USB stick. Wow, that's how big they are. You're jamming this all into something that's the size of a USB stick? So the small ones can be really small. They wow. could be the size of the modern futuristic USB sticks. Some of the other ones might be a bit bigger, especially if you're talking about, which we can talk about later, as linked organ systems. Yeah. You might get something bigger, the size of a modern-day Petri dish. Okay, okay. So how do you, as you're talking about all these different complicated systems, is this, are, are all of these in one single tissue chip, or are they connected and simulating them individually? So that's a great question. So the tissue chip field has really evolved and exploded over the past few years. Hmm. And as a result of that, there's this massive diversity in the systems that we have. So you might have one single chip that's quite straightforward. It's just modeling, say, one single tissue. Ah. And there might be other chips that model other single tissues. And then there's ways to link those uh, physically through pumps and through microfluidic channels. Or you might get systems that on one single plate have multiple different sort of um, uh, pots for your different kinds of tissues and then you can perfuse those with what's called we call, would call a universal medium mm -hmm. or a blood mimetic so you can get multiple different kinds of tissues within one system and so there's really a broad range of, of everything from single tissues to multiple linked tissues the linked tissues is harder it's much more complicated for a number of reasons <laughs> but it definitely starts off with one single tissue and then you can build from that okay so how does how does it work when I when you say tissue chip? What I'm imagining is like a heart and like something that's like a chip, but I don't think that's what it is. So the chips word comes from the idea that the original chips were made often with silicon plastics, hmm. much like computer chips, processor chips. So that's where that idea came from, and the idea of this micro embossing and microfluidics and micro technology is where that kind of concept of computer chips to tissue chips came from. Um, but nowadays, there's such a, like I said, this huge broad diversity in these different kinds of systems that really the, the key concept of what a tissue chip is, is this space, this pot, this uh, bioreactor where you can chuck in a bunch of different cells uh, from a number of different sources. And we can talk a bit more about some of the challenges faced with cell sourcing, for example. Mm -hmm. But essentially, you throw all these cells together, you provide them with the nutrients they need, they buzz along and they do their thing and they chit chat to each other. And then what you get is a functional unit of what human tissues are like in vitro is the key thing. It's outside of your body. So it's literally like taking a little bit of you and putting it into a pot, letting the cells chat to each other, looking at how they respond to different stresses, different drugs, different genetics, and then seeing what they do in vitro to predict what your body's doing in vivo. Huh, okay. So it's it's not necessarily a tiny heart in the chip. It's all the components of the heart working together, getting the nutrients it mm -hmm. needs, and then you do what to it to say, to understand how it reacts. Are you putting yeah. drugs in there? Are you, what are you doing to it? Exactly, so let's look at the heart as an example. Yeah. So your heart isn't just one amorphous blob. It might look <laughs> like it from the outside, but it's incredibly complicated. Oh, yeah. You have different kinds of cardiomyocytes or heart cells in the atria, 
as you do in the ventricles. And so the, the, the cardiomyocytes that make up that blob of tissue that you're working to make as a tissue chip are going to be slightly different. So it might be that some researchers decide to focus on the atrium. So they'll look at atrial cardiomyocytes. Mm. They might decide to look at atrial fibrillation. So they might be able to take some kinds of skin cells, for example, fibroblasts, from patients with atrial fibrillation. They can do what's called or use stem cell technology and create uh, induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cells from these people's skin cells and create small blobs of <laughs> atrial tissue that is derived from that person who's got atrial fibrillation okay. in this in vivo, in vitro system. Then they can start looking at the effects of different drugs. They can start looking at the effects of different stresses, different carbon dioxide levels, all kinds of different things. They can start, if they want to get really fancy, <laughs> is they can start looking at the effect of gene editing techniques on these tissues to see how they'll then respond in vitro to be able to predict what human responses would be. Okay. So you can even you can even isolate specific functions of the complicated organ and say, I want to yeah. know what this does to this specific thing uh, whenever this stimulus, this uh, drug, this whatever is applied. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And so tissue chips have this really broad range of potential functionality. So they arose because there was a need in the drug development process to have better predictive models of human physiology. Hmm. So right now through the drug development process, there's this huge attrition rate. The number of drugs that get approved is exponentially tiny compared to the number of molecules that might be potential hits and lead compounds during that development process. Hmm. And there's a few reasons for that. And a couple of those reasons are firstly that many of the molecules that get put, that come out of drug development processes turn out to be toxic. They might be toxic to cells on a two-dimensional level. Hmm. They might be toxic in animals. Or worse, they might be toxic when you put them into human subjects in early clinical trials. Now, that's a big no-no, and that's what we want to avoid. Yeah. Another reason that a lot of drugs fail is because they don't actually do what they're supposed to be doing. This is a concept of efficacy. So you can run a bunch of tests in vitro in a two-dimensional well plate. You can run a bunch of tests in animals, which provide a, a wonderful analog of a whole organism system. But animals are not humans. Well, humans are animals, but that's a different discussion. <laughs> the idea is that animal and human physiology can be very different. We have different liver... Um, different ways of metabolizing drugs in our liver, all kinds of different enzymes. And so there's a real disconnect between all these wonderful drugs that are coming out that are actually going to be useful. And so tissue chips actually arose as a way to be able to understand human physiology, to, to be able to gauge toxicity much earlier on in the drug development process, and then to be able to check that potentially some of the drugs that are coming through that pipeline are actually going to be doing what they're supposed to be doing without some necessary or necessarily uh, adverse side effects. Mm -hmm. Without actually giving it to a human. You exactly. Know, you have all of these tests to see how it's going to function, and then this gives you another method, another check to say, yeah, exactly. this is going to work in humans, but we haven't necessarily poisoned anyone. Exactly. Yeah. And so tissue chips are an incredible tool in that process. They're not the be-all and the end-all. They're not going to replace animals anytime soon, we don't think, but they could be an incredible tool in the drug development process. Mm -hmm. Another way that we can see that they could be really incredibly useful is in terms of disease modeling. So if you look at the diseases that humans are faced with, cancers, genetic disorders, path uh, pathogenic infections, microbial infections, all these terrible kinds of things, every single person reacts differently to these cancers, to these um, infections, to these environmental exposures. And so using tissue chips is a way to really understand in a, in a very easily, tightly controllable model system exactly what's happening, 
to your physiology or to your friend's physiology or to your brother's physiology in this in vitro system. So mm. it enables us to be able to predict population responses, for example, to different kinds of infections. Or if you can look at cancer populations or subpopulations, if you have different kinds of genetically caused or genetically um, risk-driven cancers, then you can start using the tissue chips and modeling these in tissue chips to understand what exactly is it about this particular subpopulation that's making them, uh, that's making their cancers act in a particular way towards a particular drug, or what kind of particular drug might be more useful in this population than in this population, or what kind of cancer drug might cure the cancer in this population but kill everyone in a different population. Hmm. So the ways that you can use these chips to model disease and to understand the the, the, the pathogenetic causes and all of the associated stuff that goes along with disease mechanisms in a chip means you just can't do that in animals. You just can't do that in two-dimensional systems. And you also can't do it in a human because there are so many other variables in humans that it's a whole different can of worms to try and understand. Yeah. It sounds so, from, from what you're describing, it sounds like this is very much in place. This is a product that's being used right now for all of these different tests. Is that right? So there's a spectrum of answers to that. Okay, okay. <laughs> Tissue chips have been around for about a decade or so, but it's only really in the last five or six years that there's this really broad diversity of chips that have come to be created and developed. I see. And that's partly due to a lot of NIH funding, so funding from the US government, funding from other governments around the world. There are a few commercially available tissue chips that different companies are selling. They're modeling all kinds of different tissues. But at the moment, it's still quite early. It's still pretty early in the bio, in this biotech's days. It's very exciting to see where it's going to go, but there's a lot of challenges that are still faced by the field that everyone as a, as a community is trying to kind of crowdsource yeah. and work out some of the answers to. Yeah, it sounds like one of the things you were kind of going towards is, is more personalized medicine, more that individual aspect of things, understanding how these drugs or whatever may affect different populations. Is yeah. that something that is being researched or is applied now? Absolutely. It's yeah. one of those huge potential areas we see yeah. could be tissue chips could be massively helpful in. Mm -hmm. So like I said, there's lots of space for tissue chips in the toxicology world, all this kind of um, efficacy type stuff. But if you're t talking about precision medicine, that's an early field in itself. So yeah. the um, medicine is definitely moving that way. It's starting to understand that different genetics mean that different people are sensitive to different concentrations and different cocktails, combinations of drugs. But there's that in itself is still such a huge area of research that, again, what we're saying is that tissue chips could be an incredibly useful tool to model all of these and to, 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 pop, to pop into the toolbox yeah. to, to help answer these difficult questions. That's actually why you're in town today, isn't it? You're talking with this with uh, colleagues from around NASA or, I guess, other organizations as well? Yep, exactly. I am at a workshop today for precision medicine. I'm going to be talking this afternoon about tissue chips for disease modeling and precision medicine efforts. There you go. Well, yeah. thank you for stopping by. I'm <laughs> delighted to be here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so so we should probably dive into the fact that this is this is a capability that's, that's being tested right now. Still a lot to figure out, but one of the things we're looking at is is using these in space mm -hmm. right so why what do we need to know about how these are used in space what is this what is this going to help us understand so this is part of a, a really exciting program that um, where I work the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences is spearheading we've partnered with CASIS which is the Center for Advancement of Science in Space mm -hmm. and we have got together to send these tissue chips to as you say the International Space Station and we could not be more excited <laughs> for a number of reasons my 
microgravity has an incredibly disruptional effect on the human body in ways that we don't necessarily fully understand. And I know that you've had uh, the five-part series from the Human Research Programme talking about the different risks in space. Yeah. And, uh, and so a lot of those risks in space could actually potentially be modelled on tissue chips. So that's the first thing is that these tissue chips could give really important information about disease pathology, understanding of microgravity effects in human tissues in in vitro systems. So that's going to be useful for the space research field, the yeah. space biomedical research field. But also microgravity seems to cause changes in human physiology that actually directly translate to disease pathology here on Earth. Hmm. So some of the fluid shift stuff that occurs up in microgravity um, is directly correlational to some different kinds of cardiovascular disease. There's a higher incidence of kidney stones up in microgravity, which we don't really understand why. Kidney stones, big clinical problem. Yeah. Aging of the immune system or immunosenescence is seen as people get older down here on Earth or they get exposed to more kinds of different uh, viruses and colds and bacteria. Their immune system responds appropriately or inappropriately. And there's been anecdotal evidence and some evidence of how T-cells, for example, respond differently to microgravity in space. And I think Dr. Brian Crucian was actually talking about that one on your previous podcast. Yeah. So there's all these changes that happen up in microgravity that are really interesting and important and potentially very informative for human disease here on Earth. And so that's what we're using these tissue chips for in space is that we can model things that might take months or years to occur down here on Earth. If you're looking at... Uh, sarcopenia, which is muscle loss, or osteoporosis, which is loss of bone density, which is a huge issue for astronauts in space, we can model something that might take 10 or 15 years here on Earth to become even clinically relevant in a couple of weeks up in microgravity. Whoa. So we're able to really try and start understanding disease pathologies and uncovering disease pathologies in a very accelerated way that we couldn't do down here on Earth. How is that? How is, how is the timeline accelerated with microgravity? Well, that's what we don't understand. Whoa. So that's why it's of interest both for us as researchers for human health here on Earth, because we want to understand what is it that causes osteoporosis? Is it genetic? Is it environmental? What is it? Yeah. Up in space, there has to be a huge environmental aspect to it. So what is the actual um, biological mechanisms and molecular biology underpinning that loss of bone density up on station that is so fast could we potentially uncover new molecules that uh, tissues respond to up in space that mean that it gives us potential new therapeutic targets to target osteoporosis here on Earth? Hmm. Could it give us insight into genetic mechanisms and genetic predispositions? So we're really looking to understand new things by being able to utilize the microgravity up on station. Wow. And this kind of goes back to your point of how small they are, mm -hmm. right? This is a huge consideration for sending things up to space. Yep. Is mass is also a consideration when you're when you're sending things in a cargo vehicle. So if you can send all of these chips with all these different organs and functions yep. all together, that'll give you some uh, some time and yeah. some some uh, I guess flexibility with what you can accomplish. Yeah. And so a key point that you just raised there is how the chips are small, and yeah. that's absolutely true. But if you look at the pumps and the computational needs that are needed to supply these chips with their microfluidic channels, with all of their plasma and all of their uh, takeaway, all of their um, effluent that comes out of the chip, then all of a sudden your teeny tiny chip could need something to support it that's the size of your kitchen refrigerator. So one of the key challenges that our investigators have to face and that we're really excited to be partnering with Casis and with NASA to achieve is it's forcing our teams to make their teeny tiny chips with their big refrigerator size support units, put all their teeny tiny chips into something the size of a shoebox. 
Whoa. because that's what's going to fit on a rocket that can then be taken up to station and just be plugged and played literally like a Lego piece. Just plug it in and play it. <laughs> so right now, a, a lot of the chips that are created and designed here on Earth are quite bespoke. They're quite artisanal. Hmm. And so they're developed by each individual lab and each individual researcher. But it's very hard for them to translate that to a broader audience because the specialty that's needed to to create and seed and get these chips functional is very specific and specialized. And we've had the term a chip whisperer being thrown around because <laughs> it can be quite complicated. You need really transdisciplinary experience and understanding to be able to get some of these chips to function. So that's another one of the challenges with the Chips in Space program is that our chips have to become what has been described by various NASA astronauts as pilot proof. So it has to be <laughs> able for someone as stupid as an astronaut oh, to man. be able to plug their words not ours their words but it has to be simple enough and 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 turnkey enough that they can take it out of the the capsule that's just arrived yeah they can plug it into the systems on station they can turn a valve they can do this they can do that and it doesn't require specialized scientific knowledge to be able to do that yeah and so the ability to be able to create systems that do that mean that down here on Earth, we suddenly have this tool that can model all of this cool biological stuff, all of this cool technical stuff, but it can be sent anywhere on the planet. Yeah. Wow. So that's, that's funny when you say about the astronauts. I was laughing just because it's, it's mainly because they have so much to do, mm -hmm. right? So it's like understanding this complex process is going to take more time and energy. The more simple you can yep. make it, Absolutely. the more easier the education, the more people that can get their hands on it. But it sounds like that's translatable to even just the process on Earth. Exactly. If you get these giant refrigerator-sized things down to a shoebox, mm -hmm. if you get people that can go in and, and flip a couple mm -hmm. switches, read a manual, and then they're good to go, exactly. that's, that makes the whole process a lot faster. Exactly. And, and it takes takes it from a large, complicated uh, process that requires a lot of specialist need mm -hmm. to something that any lab on the planet could have and any summer high school student could potentially be able to go in and actually run experiments in this in this way. So you were hinting at some of the challenges of, of manufacturing mm -hmm. tissue chips before. So what are those challenges? It sounds like you were talking about cross-disciplinary understanding mm -hmm. of how the whole thing works. What are some of the hardest parts about, about creating these things? So that's a great question. And I'll preface this by saying that science is hard. <laughs> it's, it's complicated. It's messy. Things don't work. Um, it's just a repeated iteration of failure and trying to get better. So one of the key things about understanding tissue chips and their development is just how, like I said, transdisciplinary it is. Mm -hmm. You have technical challenges, you have biological challenges. If you're talking about technical challenges, and I'll just refer to the design of them here on Earth because the space stuff is a whole different ballgame. <laughs> but if you talk about technical challenges, you have to think about what materials is your chip going to be made of? Is it going to be made of a kind of plastic that absorbs lots of different kinds of drugs? or but you, that you can see through with a microscope or is it going to be made out of something else that is not so optically clear so you might not be able to see what the cells are doing in real time instead so there are always trade-offs hmm. related to the design of your chip based on what questions you want to ask of it hmm. you might have to think about how you're going to connect multiple different organ systems so we might not see bubbles as a potentially big problem if you're talking about bubbles in tubes or piping but if you're talking about microfluidics bubbles are death Oh. Bubbles will kill your system because the microfluidics can't pump and your cells will die. If you're talking about how to link different systems, you have to start thinking about how are you going to maintain sterility. So your cell culture in each of your systems can be quite different. So how are you going to link them to make sure that when you plug that next little pipe in, you don't pick up all the dirt and all the the crud that's on the desktop surrounding you that you're plugging it into. So there's all these issues of sterility. 
if you're talking about um, populating your chips, some of the biological challenges, cell sourcing is a huge issue in the field right now. You can buy commercially available cell sources for numbers of like many, many different kinds of cells, but you might get differences in the batches. You might get differences in the media that you need to get them to grow. It might take you nine months to actually be able to get the kinds of mature cells that you need before you can even start using them. Mm. So you've got issues with that. If you're looking at, as I referred to earlier, induced pluripotent stem cells or IPS-derived cells, that in itself is a whole massive field of research in biology that's only really been around for the less than a decade. It's, it's a huge, exciting, massively uh, interesting field with so much potential, but it's very early days. Mm -hmm. So right now, if depending on the tissue that you're looking at, if you take skin cells or a punch biopsy or any other kinds of cells from a human donor, and you try and make them into a different kind of cell through different kinds of cell differentiation protocols, then there's not necessarily any guarantee that what you're going to get is what you're actually looking for. So there's all different kinds of issues with the protocols. There's different kinds of issues with how mature the cells are. We talked about cardiomyocytes earlier on. If you take or if you try and derive IPS-derived cardiomyocytes from human donors, from skin cells or whatever, you get a very young phenotype and phenotype is uh, the word we use for basically how it looks hmm. so you have your genotype which is what the genes are inside it and the phenotype which is how it's how it comes out at the end hmm. and so you can get a very Im immature phenotype that might be equivalent to almost a fetus or a two-month-old baby which when you're trying to compare that to how that is relevant to the 50-year-old cardiovascular patient that they came from then there's clearly a disconnect yes so there's a lot of work that's going on in that field to look at cell sourcing. Yeah. Um, looking at the immune response, every single part of your body, every single organ in your system has different kinds of cells that will have a different kind of immune response very much within their system. And it's based on your experience. I talked about immunosenescence. It's based on whether or not you had chickenpox as a child or whether or not you had a measles vaccine, all of this kind of stuff. Modeling that on a chip in this in vitro system can be incredibly challenging because we still don't understand in a full human system or animal systems how all of those integrated organs might work together to give an either innate or adaptive immune response. Wow. It goes back to your opening kind of comment that science is hard. So it's, it's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not this plug, plug and run sort of phenomenon that we're requesting, and this is going to be the challenging part. It depends on the system. There yeah. are some that oh. are plug and play. There are some liver systems, there are kidney systems, oh. kidney proximal tubules that are complicated but are relatively well validated in the sense that they can be replicated in a number of different laboratories, they can be replicated with uh, relatively standardized cell lines, and so then you're starting to get to the stage where you're getting a product that is much more useful for the broader community. But it really depends on the chip, it depends on the system, it depends on the organ. Yeah. There are so many variables, and so it's an incredibly broad spectrum of where we are and where we're going which is why it's not a replace everything else now we're just doing tissue chips it's just another exactly yeah. exactly okay. so certainly within the field we have a lot of uh, controversy and banter and back and forth amongst our <laughs> investigators and about people who might be the end users how useful are these systems going to be mm -hmm. what kind of questions can we ask and those are really great questions that everyone is involved in because this is the evolution of a whole new biotech yeah and it's going to have multiple different uses on so many different levels and so everything we do we're asking about why are we doing this why is this important yeah 
Do you have an example that you can recall of something that you were testing with other models and then came to the tissue chips and said, oh, this is kind of surprising, or something that the tissue chips maybe revealed that wasn't apparent before? And because the liver is the organ that does all of the drug metabolism and then spits it out to all the different organs, yeah. a lot of what is incredibly important in drug development is the actual drug metabolism. Hmm. And so this is where what we call PKPD, which is pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic modeling, and uh, various other kinds of uh, modeling come into play. Because if you can link tissue chips together, get integrated organ systems, which we talked a little bit about some of the challenges, yeah. then you can start understanding how sequential metabolism might happen, for example, in the liver, in the, in the human. You can understand how you might take a drug through the mouth. Some of your saliva enzymes might change how it's broken down. Uh, you can run it through the gut and then see how the different kinds of gut acids might be affecting the different metabolites, send it to the kit, send it to the liver, see what kinds of uh, bioactive metabolites might come out of it, send it to the kidney and see which uh, types of um, uh, molecules might get stuck in your kidney. They might be nephrotoxic yeah. or what kinds of metabolites might uh, pass up and get passed through, for example, your blood-brain barrier. Now, if you've suddenly got active metabolites of something passing through your blood-brain barrier, then you have a whole different world of hurt because all of a sudden you're bringing the brain into the into the equation as well. And so you're just you could be disrupting so many different systems within your body without realizing. And that's something that, that animal studies can't necessarily replicate. Hmm. Whereas if you're very targeted in how you link tissue chips and look at what you're the outcomes that you're getting from each chip and what's being sent on, then you can be very specific in looking at off-target side effects, for example. Yeah, this goes back to your um, kind of statement about how it's kind of progressing and evolving as we go on yes, and, and exactly. kind of linking all these tissue chips mm -hmm. to understand, you know, you're talking about tissues, talking about organs on chips, but how they're connected and resembling the human body. And yes, how everything human on chip, everything. exactly. Because on, honestly, you know, you take, you take like a, I don't know, antacid whenever mm -hmm. your stomach is upset, but how is it affecting other things, yep. you know? Um, just questions like that that mm -hmm. you might not understand. Yep. Or like how, how you take like a, uh, I don't know, antihistamine mm -hmm. after you uh, get like a bug bite and yep. somehow it, it disappears. I don't know. This is all foreign to me because I'm not <laughs> like a doctor. I'm sure you're like, oh, yeah, that's very simple. But um, Absolutely yeah, not. Nothing about this is simple. Oh, so okay. Humans okay. are not simple. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we may we need, think they are. <laughs> and that, <laughs> well, some people I know are simple. But. Their systems are pretty complex. <laughs> and so we're trying to mimic some of that complexity okay. in these tools. Okay. So... Um, why don't we kind of revisit the tissue chips and just kind of go back to sort of the history, the inception okay. of, of this. Do you know where it started, how it kind mm -hmm. of evolved? Because the idea of putting something on a chip just seems so like, an, like a yep. human function on a little device. It just yep. seems so foreign. Yep. So where did this all come about? So so what is that phrase? Is it necessity is the driver of innovation or something like that? It's beautiful so, enough as it is, yeah. Um, so there's been this huge push, like I mentioned, in drug development. Um, there's been this big disconnect between humans and animals. There's been a big disconnect between um, two-dimensional cell dishes and, and more complicated model systems. And there's this huge attrition rate in the development of new drugs. And so um, early on, um, about 10, 15 years ago, the NIH, National Institutes of Health, got together with the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and they said, hey, we have we have these problems. We need new tools. We need new ways to try and... Uh, advanced regulatory science and that was literally the name of the program was advancing regulatory science nice. and so they had a bunch of different applications that came in and one of the applications that came into that program was what was for what was called the development and design of a heart lung micro machine 
And this was, if you like, the original lung on a chip. This was a, a very uh, elegant and quite simple, but still very effective design where they, uh, the team actually designed the, a lung alveolus on a chip. They designed a system where they had uh, lung epithelial cells on one side and other kinds of cells on the other side. And then they had a membrane between them, which was, uh, which they could, if they applied vacuum forces down the side of this chip, they could cause the, the membrane to stretch and ex expand and contract, expand just, and contract. Just like a lung. Just like your lung, yeah. exactly. So they were mimicking these biological forces to these cells on both sides of this membrane, as would be seen in your lung alveolus. And so they were able to see uh, using these different kinds of cells, what effects the um, different kinds of drugs had on this system. They could look at bacterial infection and see how bacteria can pass through the system. They could look at things like nanoparticles, cigarette smoke, all kinds of different things that might affect our lungs, and they could look in this little in vitro tool. Hmm. And so since then, the promise of that was, it was one of those things where if there's a good idea, someone's going to come up with it anyway. Yeah. But it was definitely, there was a lot of interest at the same time. And so as a result, NIH then decided to get together with DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Mm -hmm. And they were going to co-fund two different programs which had slightly different, um, slightly different aims, but that would run concurrent with each other to fund the development of these tissue chips. Hmm. And so NIH funded a five-year program which was for tissue chips for drug screening, and DARPA ran a program which was to create a human body on a chip. So DARPA wanted 10 different organ systems represented in one machine that you could plug in and then do all this stuff. Huh. So NIH and DARPA, they had their same aim, slightly different goals yeah and but faced a lot of challenges similar challenges along the way so those five-year programs ran and they ended in 2017 and DARPA said hey this was awesome you know take it and go like you guys did an awesome job like we, we want to see what you guys come up with now so NIH is continuing to fund that and we're now running a program called uh, tissue chips for disease modeling and efficacy testing mm -hmm. we have the tissue chips in space program right uh, we have a tissue chip testing centers program. So we have a number of different programs that are now coming through to support the development of these chips in different ways and see where we can go and what we can do with this technology. Okay. So let's focus on the tissue chips in space mm -hmm. part. So what's the what's the plan there? When are we going to start ramping up and sending these, well, these chips up? Well, so the first nail-biting launches begin in November okay. this year. Oh, wow. That's quite so cool. November 2018. So we have our first teams getting ready to... Uh, decamp down to uh, Kennedy Space Center. Okay. And they're going to be setting their labs up there and getting their chips ready to launch. So this was a four-year program that began last year. And now we have our teams getting ready to launch. They're going to send two uh, missions, two flights. And the second flight is going to be building on what they learned from the first flight, both mm -hmm. technical and biological. Okay. So we have five teams funded through that, and all of the information is on the NCATS website. Um, but we also then partnered with um, NIBIB, which is another institute for biomedical uh, imaging and bioengineering at NIH. So we partnered with them, and we've re we reissued this program. We said, hey, guys, this is so great. We want to you know, give you some more money. What else you got? <laughs> so we've got another few projects that have just been funded through that, and uh, that's going to be uh, being announced very shortly. And so those guys will be flying... Uh, f two years from now and then another two years from then. Wow. Okay. So I, I like that idea of building. So you're just, you're, 
the idea is to find out what's going to happen to these mm -hmm. things in space, right? That's why they're they're being sent and designed and tested. But then after you learn to send more stuff up, so yeah. is a lot of it the the biological science, or is is some of it the systems themselves and making sure that shoebox yep. size thing is going to work? Maybe a little bit of both. It's absolutely it's both. So yeah. say you're looking at a system that is modeling um, the blood-brain barrier. And you've gone from having one chip with a refrigerator-sized support mechanism to 12 chips in something the size of a shoebox. And we do have a team that's been doing that. Then all of a sudden, they have 12 times the number of things that could potentially go wrong with their <laughs> pumping mechanisms on in a shoebox that's going to be packed into a launch vehicle, sit on a launch pad for a while, and then rumble around and then get shot up into space at high speed. Yeah. So we don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. in that circumstance. We can plan and mitigate for it as much as possible, as NASA does with everything they do that they're sending to space. Mm -hmm. And we can get our guys to drop their chips from the tops of their buildings and see how they shatter or see if their cells detach from the walls of the chip inside the chip when they do that. So we can make them run it controls on hypergravity. We can make them run controls on microgravity. We can make them get their great aunt Nellie who has never touched a petri dish or a pipette in her life to try and use the system and see just how pilot proof this system might be. Yeah. So we can get our guys to do as many experiments on earth as they can to try and work out what could go wrong. Yeah. But until they do it, we don't know. Okay. And then the key idea is that from the first flight that they do, the science that they're going to be looking at is going to say, oh, hey, here's something here that we haven't seen before that we think is a result of microgravity. And we're going to have to do a bunch of different controls to make sure that it's microgravity that's actually causing that change, say, in how leaky the blood-brain barrier might be. But then we can take that result from the first flight and we can say, well, if we, if we see that there's this change in the blood-brain barrier, we're pretty sure it's due to microgravity and we've got one more flight. Do we have any potential drugs for this kind of thing? Or is there a potential intervention? Or is there a potential disease that this might be modeling? Then you can investigate that with the second flight in an applied manner. Huh. So that's why we have these two flights. So you can almost say the first flight is the practice. Yeah. It's absolutely not. It's incredibly scientifically rigorous. But it's going to tell us what is actually going on so that we can then apply the results from that to maybe get new therapeutics, new disease mechanisms, new understanding of what's going on in your body by shooting them up to space. Huh. Could you could you use the tissue chips as... I'm, I'm trying to think of how this works. Can you use them in space, kind of understand you know just kind of run it understand what's going on and then bring it down to earth plug in it again and run some i don't know new drugs and see if it has some sort of effect is that something mm -hmm. that is possible so yeah now you're thinking like our teams have been thinking which All is right. great so <laughs> there's so many different things you can do so okay. some of our teams are sending the tissues up and they're freezing them straight after they get to Freeze. microgravity because they want to see what the effects of hypergravity were of okay. launch oh the stresses associated with launch then they'll have, out of that cohort, they'll have some chips that they don't freeze, and they'll sit in microgravity and bubble around for a while and do their thing, and then they'll yeah. freeze them. Okay. And then we have other teams that are sending their chips up to space, and we have one team which is doing some really cool work looking at um, terminal differentiation of T cells, so looking at the immune response and how uh, microgravity affects it. And so what's very exciting with, with this project is that they're going to be taking the chips up to space, they're going to be able to see what effect launch has, what effect microgravity has. Hmm. But then they're also going to be bringing their chips back down to Earth with the cells still buzzing and doing their thing. So then they're going to be able to see what effect the return to standard gravity has on their systems 
and whether it reverses the changes that they've seen through microgravity. So that is going to tell you exactly what spaceflight associated changes there are when this particular immune response, for example, and how it can revert back to normal back here on Earth, because that's also something that a lot of the a lot of the astronauts say is that they come back down and those changes reverse after a few weeks or months. Right. That is fascinating. Mm -hmm. that, that whole process can be done with the tissue chips. Mm -hmm. That's insane. Yeah. Um, so maybe one day we'll be able to put astronauts on a chip and send, <laughs> send them up either alongside the actual astronauts or yeah. before they go, after they've been, and do personalized type stuff with with astronaut data and with astronaut tissues. Wow. So that's the future then. There you're talking about more personalized chips, maybe even more functions on a single chip. Is that some of the future yeah. things you're looking at? Yeah, potentially. Wow. Yeah. And so some of the things that we can look at on the chips, Yeah. they can be a really broad range of outcomes. You're talking about uh, different kinds of things you want to look at. You sure. can, you, some of the chips are see-through. So you can put them under a microscope and see what's going on in real time. Yeah. Some of the chips have different kinds of electrodes embedded into them. So if you're looking at cardiac tissue or neural tissue, you can see how active the tissues actually are. If they're buzzing, if they're talking to each other with cardiac tissues, you can see if they're twitching. So there's already been some cardiomyocyte work that's been done up on station where you could see that the actual cells were starting to twitch and contract like a heart tissue would. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at neural tissues, you can start looking at whether the synapses are doing their thing, whether the, the nerve cells are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's lots of different kinds of uh, analogs and outcomes that you can be looking at that tell you what is going on in that tissue, sometimes in real time in this system. Let's talk about you, Lucy, because because um, this is super complicated, and I'm I'm keep thinking about that phrase where you said it's multidisciplinary mm -hmm. to really understand how these things work. What is your background, and then who are you working with to, to all make this come together? So I'm actually a neuroscientist by training. Really. So. I would like to say it's the toughest of tough challenges in human <laughs> research, but I'm sure that I'll get shot down for saying that. Um, so I'm a neuroscientist by training, but I study the neuroscience of pain, hmm. which is intensely personal, but also intensely transdisciplinary. Hmm. You have to be able to understand molecular biology. You have to be able to understand psychology and everything in between. So I spent a number of years training as a, a neuroscientist, a pain neuroscientist. And then I decided I wanted to step into the bioengineering biotech field. And I was lucky enough to land this job, yeah. which is incredible and super exciting. And, uh, and so now I work with bioengineers. I work with biologists from all different areas because every single organ system that you have will have different specialists. Yeah. Uh, I work with materials engineers. I work with physicists. I work with electrical engineers. And, uh, and it's, that's why it's so broad. You know, mathematicians, yeah. epidemiologists, computational theorists, all this kind of crazy stuff. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's, that's much more broad than I was thinking. I was thinking more... Like, I don't know, human human sciences, uh, no, doctors. It's no, it's human sciences, everything. it's material sciences, yeah. it's physical sciences. Wow. Okay. Yeah, well, that makes sense, right? Chemical sciences. Must yeah. forget them. To understand <laughs> how microgravity is, there's a little bit of biology, but there's mm -hmm. a little bit of, of physics, too. Yep. There's a little bit of math. Absolutely. Wow. Loads of math. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> this is very exciting. Um, I keep thinking about the, the future and, and how this can be how this can be kind of rolled out. You said it's, it's been evolving over time. Mm -hmm. There's things we want to understand about how 
it's going to work in space and when it can reveal about what's mm-hmm. happening to the human body. You know, you were talking about osteoporosis. You were mm-hmm. talking about aging. There's mm-hmm. all these, all the, the, the immune system, mm-hmm. all these effects that can happen from microgravity. Going forward, how do you imagine the future for tissue chips? You know, you're talking about astronauts on chips. Uh, you're, you're talking like full, more functionality, uh, more personalization. What's the future for this? So the short answer is all of those. Oh, wow. <laughs> so we, like we said, we, we want to see these tools developed. Mm-hmm. We want to see them, uh, that their utility can be demonstrated. And then we want to demonstrate to everyone that actually these tools are really helpful and you guys should try using them too. <laughs> so there's avenues everywhere for that. Yeah. So some of the areas of uh, research and, and the stuff that we're going to be focusing on in future from NIH's end is uh, moving towards precision medicine, personalized medicine type things, looking at different kinds of subpopulations of patients, mm-hmm. different uh, demographics, socio-demographics, age demographics, gender, race, ethnicity, all of that good stuff. And then also precision medicine. So looking at, for example, rare disease populations. Hmm. So if you can take rare disease populations, they might only have five or 10 people on the planet who are afflicted with a rare disease. Yeah. But we can get hold of some of their cells, obviously with full informed consent and with them as, you know, involved in the process the whole way through. Sure. Then they can be involved in clinical trials on a chip. That means that they can have drugs tested in their systems on on chip in vitro that doesn't actually involve the risk that's associated with rare disease patients for actually going through a clinical trial in person. That's right. So there's loads of different kinds of applications we see there. Wow. And it sounds like more real time, you know, there's there's this, the more chips you have, more manufacturing, more personalization, yep. more efficiency, it just sounds mm-hmm. like just an ever evolving sort of field. Exactly. So wow. and all of the challenges that everyone faces we're all working together to try and overcome those and move forward as a field because they're key challenges for everyone. But the potential for these tools is really exciting. Yeah, that's so wonderful. I kind of wanted to end with, this is kind of backtracking a little bit, thinking about the future, but just the process of, of working with the tissue chips in space and the relationships between NIH, uh, between cases, between NASA, mm-hmm. how does that all work to actually make this happen? So a lot of it involves uh, networking at conferences, there you go. Um, hanging out at the tiki bars afterwards, <laughs> and talking freely. So yeah. science is so collaborative, especially with these transdisciplinary subjects. Mm-hmm. We really want to get people together. We want to be able to break down some of the barriers so that people feel comfortable talking to each other. And if that involves sharing a pint after work, then... I'm totally okay with that personally. Um, Obviously not paid for with any kind of government funds. Um, But yeah, our key point is that we, we're all working for the same, towards the same goals. Right. From NASA's perspective, it might be to mitigate and understand the risks associated with long-term spaceflight. Right. For NIH's end, it's understanding human health and biology and disease here on earth and how to make that better. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is that we both have things that we're working on that overlap. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of uh, synergy there between what our end goals are. And so we like to work with as many people as we can. My institute, NCATS in particular, everything we do is collaborative. Everything we do is designed to bring people in and say, hey, you guys have got a great idea. What can yeah. we do with that? We've got this brilliant idea. We have this expertise. Let's talk about this. Let's see how we can try and work this out and crowdsource and move forward. Yeah. And realizing that the execution of this experiment in space benefits all of these different Everyone's There you yeah. go. Lucy, thank you so much for coming on and explaining this crazy, straight-up sci-fi phenomenon of tissue genre chips. I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been wonderful. Thanks so much, Gary.
Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Lucy Lowe about these tissue chips and why we're going to be sending them up up to space. So they're going to be launching on a cargo vehicle coming up here soon. So go to nasa.gov slash NTV to find the latest launch schedule so you can watch them go to space live. Um, We have exciting launches coming here uh, over the next few months. So make sure to see what's coming up uh, here soon. Otherwise, you can go to nasa.gov slash ISS, and you can actually see what we have on tissue chips so far and kind of see the updates as they come along. Also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, we have the International Space Station accounts. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to uh, ask a question or submit an idea for the show even and uh, suggest an episode coming up here in the future just to make sure to mention Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on September 25th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, Stephen Benowitz, Rachel Berry, and Liz Warren. And thanks again to Dr. Lucy Lowe for coming on the show. Thanks to the Program Science Office for coming and filming today's event. We'll be back next week.